0: Well, welcome everybody. This will be our last um, midweek fellowship for this block um, <coughs> Excuse me for the, until the end of the year. And then in January, probably mid to late January or maybe early February, we'll start up again. And um, and we've got some things planned for that that we'll roll out to you. I think it'll be encouraging to you. But let me read from Psalm 103 and then pray. And then Robert will come and lead us tonight as we look at God's Word in this final session of how to grow as a Christian. And then we'll spend some time... Um, praying for one another uh, as a body. So let let me read from Psalm 103. David writes, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, dust. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we say along with David in this psalm that you are blessed. Our soul blesses you. All that's within us blesses your holy name. You forgive our iniquity. You heal our diseases. You work righteousness for the oppressed. You've made your way known to us. Your way is mercy and grace. You're slow to anger. You are abounding in covenantal, steadfast love. Praise praise God, Lord, that you do not deal with us according to our sins, but you have dealt with our sins once and for all on the cross. We know that your ways are higher than ours, and how great is your steadfast love. You, you've taken our sins, and you've removed them as far as the east is from the west, and you're a good Father that shows compassion to us, to those who fear your name, and you're gracious to us. You remember how frail and fragile we are, and Despite all that, you condescend and you're kind to us. You've given us one another, you've given us the church, you've given us your spirit that lives in us, and you've given us your word. So instruct us tonight from your word. Help us to grow as a result of our time together, become more like Christ, so that we would bring more glory to your name and more joy to our souls. Thank you for Robert and his study, and now use this brother to encourage the saints and we pray these things in jesus name amen
1: all right welcome back this is it let's land this thing yeah thanks mark i can always count on you um we are in uh we're gonna be all over the place but we're gonna start out in the first epistle of john chapter one verses one through four um, while you're turning there, just to kind of get your bearings a little bit, the focus of this series has been on growing as a Christian. And from the get-go, I just I wanted to establish, and I hope every week we've reestablished, that to grow in Christ, to become more like Him, uh, requires that we behold Him, that we know Him better, that we see Him for who He is, and that in doing so, we ourselves will be changed by that. Um, and so there are so many ways that the Lord has given us by which we can behold Christ and know him and therefore become more like him. Scripture is, I think, an obvious one, right? We, we hear from the Lord, we study his word, we memorize it, we, we meditate on it, we let it shape us and mold us, but it, it shows us who Jesus is, it connects us, it tethers us to him better, and, and then it's in that way that we grow, um, prayer, likewise, it tethers us to Christ. And as we speak to him, as we speak through him because of his work for us, as he is our mediator, as we are guided by his wisdom into what we should pray, we become inevitably more like him. Even the prayers that we pray that are not answered the way that we would prefer, Jesus, he, he molds and shapes us through those things. Um, there, there's not just prayer in scripture, though. Um, we, we've talked about the importance of the local church and the importance of the relationship that we have with God's people. That as God's people minister to and care for us, and as we likewise minister to one another, um, the Lord uses that to, to expand our understanding of who he is. Uh, not just in terms of practically working out scripture, I mean, yeah, but in terms of, of being tethered and united more closely to the bride for which Christ died. There's something really powerful about the just the the local church in the life of a believer uh, the people that you bump elbows with that you get frustrated with or find joy from just seeing on a regular basis all these people that the lord has put in our path he uses to make us more like him and it, just the commitment itself i think the lord uses last week we talked about suffering and the role of trials and, and in particular pain that we endure as christians and not just as christians uh, but, but that we endure while we happen to be Christian, right? We talked about persecution, the suffering we face simply because of the name that we bear. But then we also talked about just the general nature of suffering um, and the trials that we, that we face that cause us to lean more heavily on Christ, that cause us to turn to him in dependence, but that also show us the surpassing worth of Jesus over and against all the things that we might be tempted to turn to instead, and so then really every moment of suffering we face is an opportunity or, or a temptation maybe to turn from Christ and to find comfort and joy in the things of this world. But, but the gospel calls us to find it. And, and thank God, the gospel assures us that we will find it in Jesus, the joy and the comfort that we need. Um, all of this is rooted in, in what we started out with, though. John 15, abiding in Jesus. We abide in him, he abides in us, and therefore we bear fruit, we become more like him, and we do things that please him. So hopefully that'll all come full circle here tonight, actually, in 1 John chapter 1. Let me me read for you this passage. Uh, Tonight we're going to think deeply, I hope, about um, the role of evangelism and discipleship and how we grow to become more like Christ. So there's a little overlap in all these things that we've already discussed, uh, but I, I hope you'll see some differences too. 1 John 1, 1-4 says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest among us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let me, let me pray for us uh, as we think about it. Father, we... Do thank you for the ways, the ordinary means that you give us by which we might become more like you and grow to reflect the image of your son uh, more and more. Lord, we know that you have not saved us and then whisked us away to, to perfection and eternity, um, but instead you, you call us to remain here in a pattern, a, 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 an upward climb, sometimes an, a difficult one at that, but an upward climb. Uh, towards sanctification, and towards Uh, Christ-likeness. And so, Lord, we long for the day when we will see you face to face, yet we are so grateful for the means by which you've given us that we might behold Christ more and more every day. Or would you cause us to be greedy to take hold of these opportunities, to take hold of these means that you've given us? Or would you make us more like your son? And we ask in particular tonight, as we think about evangelism, as we think about discipleship, would you, uh, would you stir up in our own hearts a desire for these things, uh, that we might be um, people who proclaim Jesus and in doing so grow to be more like him. And we ask that in his name. Amen. So when we talk about evangelism and discipleship, uh, I, I get the distinction. I think it's an important distinction. Evangelism, you're, you're bringing the gospel to people who haven't heard, to people who don't believe, to people who don't know who Jesus is or what he's done. Whereas with discipleship, Lord willing, you're, you're talking about the gospel and you're bringing the gospel and all of its implications to people who already have that foundational knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done. And not just mere knowledge, you understand. I mean, they, they, people who believe this. That's where discipleship comes in. But I don't think that there's really all that much difference between evangelism and discipleship itself. It's the difference is all in really the audience uh, who's receiving this gospel proclamation. That's the difference. So tonight, as we think about evangelism and discipleship, I'm going to use these interchangeably because I, I think they are very interchangeable. I think the call of the Christian is the same to the, to the pagan as it is to the believer, which is that we would proclaim the excellencies of Christ to, to anyone who will listen. Uh, and that's essential in the life of the church, and certainly it's essential in our dealings with the world, that we would present Christ to anyone uh, who, who would listen and repent and believe. So uh, just I thought I'd kind of lay that down and go ahead and establish that. So this letter, though, that John is writing here, 1 John, it's written to, to believers. It's written to a church. But then you understand I think it has a pretty broad application uh, in that sense. So, so John is writing this letter. He's explaining to the believers to whom he's writing how they might know that they're in Christ, how they might be able to walk with greater confidence in the world, um, what are the signs that they should look for in themselves, the fruit that they should expect to see in their own lives or the lives of others around them who claim to be believers. What, what should you be looking for? And, and he starts the whole letter out uh, with this j- just explanation of that exact mindset. You know, and, and so um, he, he's explaining to them, essentially, the gospel. That's how he, that's how he starts out. That's where he goes. And, and then he says that we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Uh, there's a purpose behind what John is aiming at here. As he explains these things, as he teaches and as he continues to lay out the gospel and all of its implications to God's people, uh, there's an end in sight. And it's not just that they might believe, but John himself sees in this a purpose, even for his own good, that his joy and the joy of those who are sending this letter you know, with him might be complete, that it might be built up, that it might be established, uh, and that he might find joy and happiness in doing this. So as you read this, I think there are three elements of this evangelism-slash- discipleship that John lays out for us. There are three key elements to evangelism and discipleship here. The first is, is proclaiming what we know. Proclaiming what we know. I mean, the way he starts out is pretty, uh, it, well, it should sound somewhat familiar. It sounds a little bit like Genesis, and then for that matter, it sounds a lot like John, the Gospel, chapter 1, right? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, Which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. We have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim. You see all those descriptions that he gives of just this knowledge that he has. And, and not just this knowledge, you get the impression that he doesn't just know facts, but that he actually knows a person, that he, he knows a someone, not just a bunch of random things that he wants to communicate to them. He's, he's seen it, he's touched this word of life that he talks about. Uh, this, is, this is not just head knowledge. I mean, John is describing something that is very deeply personal to him, something that he truly knows, that he, he has lived, and not just that he's lived, but that, that he's lived with and experienced, uh, that he's seen and touched and heard. Um, the gospel is, right, the gospel is not just knowledge and facts. The, the gospel is a person, I and mean, he's Jesus, when we proclaim the gospel, we're proclaiming a person, and because of that, we're proclaiming something, not just something, but someone that we can know, someone whose presence we can experience, someone whose words we have, we have not just heard, but whose words we have, we have borne witness to, the power of what Jesus has spoken we know these things as believers, right? If you, if you know Christ, if you understand the gospel, if you have believed in Jesus and what he's done, it, it's not just an encyclopedic knowledge, right? It, it's an experience that you have. And it's something that shapes your life. It causes you to make crazy decisions according to the, the wisdom of this world, doesn't it? We, we do things based on this, this, the implications of a relationship we have with a person whom none of us have ever seen, or, or, or hugged, or shaken the hand of, or literally heard the voice of. If you've literally heard the voice of Jesus, just keep your hands down. Um, we proclaim something and we, we speak to something, though, that we know to be true from experience. The gospel is just so much, it's so much more, it's so much greater than any fairy tale, any story any collection of facts that we, could, that we could muster up. Christians, therefore, they can't help but declare to the world and to one another what we know, what we've seen and heard. That's what Christians do. That's the nature of evangelism. That's the nature of discipleship. So we're proclaiming something that we know. If you turn to Acts chapter 4, Peter uh, gets into a little trouble. I think it may be Peter and John, I can't remember. Acts chapter 4, and you specifically start in verse 8. Yes, Peter and John, uh, they they have healed a man, and uh, they're arrested, and they're told to stop, and Peter in verse 8, he is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he says to uh, the people, he says, rulers of the people and elders... If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that these were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. It's really difficult, by the way, to contradict somebody healing a person when the person whom they healed is standing right there. It's kind of... It's a challenge. So they recognized that and wisely uh, choose to drop their case. But when they had commanded, verse 15, them to leave the council, they send Peter and John away thinking this will just kind of be the end of it. They conferred with one another and they said, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may be spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Now, what has Peter just described? He said, we can't help but talk about this name. We can't help but talk about this Jesus whom you crucified. And, and Peter is insinuating that the healing of this man is not actually the, the primary focus but instead, the grounds for it, that's, that's what's so remarkable and worth proclaiming. He says, we've seen this man crucified. We've seen the resurrection. That, that's the power that you're all experiencing and witnessing the effects of now. The Pharisees think, well, let's just tell them to stop talking about this name. But Peter and John know there's no other name under heaven given by which people can be saved. And so you rightly assume that they're not going to have an easy time obeying these commands. So they call them, they charge them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus at all. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That's Peter and John's attitude, and you see it carried over so perfectly in John's letter here. Man, what we've seen is un—it is beyond comprehension. It is something not easily duplicated or experienced. You—you, this is nothing like any of the knowledge and wisdom that this world has to offer. I cannot help but proclaiming this to you. What I'm telling you right now. Is something that I have seen and heard and touched and felt. I have experienced, I know the power of the gospel. And I can't do anything else but tell you about it. So for Christians, when we, when we consider evangelism, when we consider discipleship and its importance in our lives, it comes primarily from the fact that we just can't help but proclaim what we know. That's the motivation, that's the, the root of it all, is that we are proclaiming something at its core we can't help but tell people about because it is something that we know, that we deeply know and have experienced. John chapter 1, the Gospel of John, if you look there, and specifically verse 14, this same John, he, he writes similarly about Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 14 through 18. He says, the word became flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Skip down to verse 16. From his fullness we have all received. Grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And I love this part here. No one has ever seen God the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. In Jesus, we have this revelation of God. We have the perfect revelation of who God is. You want to know what God's like? Look to Jesus. But not only that, as, as God's people, who have witnessed and experienced who Jesus is, we have something to proclaim that just goes beyond mere words. What we are what we share with people, what we point people to, whether they're believers or not, is the person of Jesus who is God in the flesh. And we can't help but, but proclaim him to, to those who, who uh, the Lord has put in our path. So, and on the one hand, um, you know, you've heard it said maybe you can't, really, you can't really know something or can't really say that you know something until you're able to, to explain it to somebody else. you just think about it, you know, take a minute. There's so many things that you might learn, that you might understand, you might be interested in, but you know you haven't really fully understood something until you can explain it to a person who would ask you about it who has no clue, right? And this is true about sports, it's true about uh, places you might want to visit, where where should I eat, what should I do? If you haven't been there, if you haven't experienced it, you're not going to be able to talk about it. And at the same time, you know, if if you... um, if you can't explain it to somebody else, you can't reveal it to somebody else, it may, in fact, be because you, you haven't experienced it for yourself. Because you, you don't really know what it's like. Um, evangelism and discipleship are means of knowing Christ better. They're, they're, they're means by which we meditate on who Jesus is and what he's done. And think about how we can proclaim that to the person around us, whether they're believers or not. And in doing so, the Lord reinforces for us who he is. The Lord reinforces for us the truth of the gospel. And he makes us more like his son. Um, this just raises a question, which is, do you, do you know the gospel? Not necessarily. Don't hear me say, do you know the fine points of the gospel? Can you, can you regurgitate it for somebody who asks or rather, do you do you have you experienced the gospel? Are you familiar with it because because Jesus has actually changed you? You know, do you? I, I've I've seen people. Um, I mean, I've been a believer since I was thirteen. I, I've seen people that I grew up around, you know, in high school, who claimed to know the gospel. They 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 were very active, like in our youth group in our church. But today, I mean, to run into them, if I were to see them, I, there's, I, I know that, that these people are not walking with the Lord. Uh, many of them have, have absolutely turned away from the Lord. Um, but it's because their experience of the gospel was, was not real. They, they could have told you a lot about what you're supposed to know or what you're supposed to experience, what it theoretically feels like, They can't tell you from their own experience who Jesus is and what he's done. I think that's a hallmark then of what it means to share the gospel and to evangelize and to, to make disciples is that we speak from what we know. We proclaim something, someone whom we know. Another hallmark, another key element of evangelism and discipleship is that we would desire fellowship with one another. So John, as he's writing, he's very oriented around, oh, this is something we know, we've experienced this, we've felt this, we've heard this, we've, we, we know this word of life, this eternal life. But his aim goes beyond just, just telling people. He says, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. So that you too may have fellowship with us. It seems like the the desire of John's heart as he relays these truths to God's people is that they would share in fellowship with John, that there would be a mutual relationship and and a binding together, a unity that can only really be founded upon the truth of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. John wants to see these people share in fellowship with them by growing in their knowledge of Jesus, by getting deeper into the truth of the gospel and all of its implications he wants the fellowship that inevitably comes from that. And I think that should be an, a key element when we think about discipleship and evangelism as well. Is it, is it just for its own sake because this is something we feel like we should do? Or do we actually see the benefit and the desirability of fellowship with God's saints? Whether they're saints right now or whether we hope to see the Lord transform them and redeem them and turn them into his people, his saints. I think that's, that's oftentimes a key element that's just missing from our interactions with people because we, I think, tend to see people in an evangelistic sense as more maybe projects or, or, uh, or like robots that we can rewire, um, but not necessarily as people that the Lord might actually be calling to share fellowship with us. You know? And I think, too, that we see that bear itself out when, when we get very frustrated and discouraged having maybe shared the gospel with a person one time, or maybe in the life of a believer we know, tried to point them to the implications of the cross once or twice, only to be incredibly frustrated or disheartened that that that, that hasn't come to pass. That they're not trusting, they're not believing, they're not acting upon what we've said, they're not hearing us, maybe they even raise some arguments against what we've brought up. But if we see the long game, if we have an idea of what the Lord's purposes might be in the long run, which is fellowship, I think it would cause us to be more patient, not just with other people, but probably also with ourselves. And maybe a little less prone to discouragement when our efforts to disciple and evangelize other people don't immediately bear the fruit that we had hoped. Because fellowship is something that's cultivated and developed over time. And Fellowship is something that the Lord himself has to work out in somebody. The fellowship that we have, the genuine fellowship that we share as God's people, it's only possible because of the Holy Spirit. Not because somebody has finally, a, a switch has flipped, and they, they maybe understand a little bit better what you're saying. No, that's a work of the Lord, and it's something that we long to see the Lord, therefore, at work in. That he would bring about fellowship John says that he wants to see fellowship come about between himself and his hearers, but he grounds this in the fact that he loves and longs for deeper fellowship with the Father and the Son. So therefore, to to seek fellowship with one another, to seek fellowship in terms of uh, seeing somebody turn and trust in Christ, uh, live more and more and more according to the gospel, by doing that, we're also, at the same time, going to bolster and seek greater fellowship with with our triune God. I think these are deeply connected. I think they're directly correlated, that our fellowship with one another and our fellowship with God are connected. They're linked. And if we want to have greater fellowship with the Lord, I think we likewise then should be pursuing greater fellowship with God's people or those who might become God's people. Uh, So if you turn to the Gospel of John again, but instead turn to chapter 17, you'll see Jesus' prayer for his disciples. Uh, It's one of the the last things that he uh, speaks over his disciples, his desire for them. But it speaks volumes to what Jesus' purposes are for his people, especially after he's gone, after his, his death and resurrection and ascension. Uh, he goes before the Lord, and as really his last, one of his last earthly acts of intercession for his people, this is what he says. This is what he goes for. This is what he desires for them. Uh, chapter 17, starting in verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, referring to the disciples present, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, You see again and again and again this idea just laced in this prayer that the fellowship that Jesus has with his Father is the same fellowship that Jesus wants to extend to his people. The the intimacy that he has with his Father is the same closeness and proximity and, and, and connection that he wants to have with his people. And not only that he desires to have with his people, but that he desires for his people to have as his people, that they may be one, even as you and I, Father, are one. This is Jesus's prayer for his people, that we would be united to one another in fellowship, and that in doing so, we would then likewise taste and see the fellowship that Jesus has with the Father, because it reminds us as well of the fellowship that we have with his Son. And I think we often we so often just short circuit the fellowship that we could have with the Father, ironically, because we're so focused on the fellowship that we have individually with God. That that we fail to see the merit and the value of pursuing greater fellowship and discipleship with one another. And when we fail to do that, I think we're missing a major component. Of, of what it is for us to know Jesus better and for us to grow. So fellowship, a desire for fellowship then should fuel our relationship with, with one another. Likewise, if you turn back to John's epistle, chapter 4, he says this. It's kind of the, the inverse. Chapter 4, verse 20, he says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You know, Jesus correlates uh, the fellowship, the love that we have for his people, with the love that we have and experience with the Father, with him. Um, but, but that also then means that the lack of love and desire for fellowship that we have for God's people is also a really good indicator of the lack of love and fellowship that we seek with the Father which really changes then our perception of discipleship. It changes the purpose of evangelism from just some sort of perfunctory, I gotta do this, this is what I do. I'm one of God's people, this is what I do, to something where, like no, for my, very, for my well-being, for the good of my soul, for the joy that I might seek with the Lord in, in relationship with him, I have to proclaim the gospel to believers and unbelievers because I desire fellowship, I desire to share in fellowship with them and then likewise to share in fellowship with the Lord. They're all all connected. So fellowship with future saints as well then encourages us to hold fast to gospel proclamation. I won't turn to it, but in Acts chapter 18, Paul goes to Corinth. And he's discouraged. He's preaching the gospel. People aren't responding very well. And he wonders, is it really all worth it? Maybe I should move elsewhere. And the Lord comes to him and says, Paul, I'm telling you, there are, I have my people here. You just need to wait, but you'll see, I have my people here. And through your preaching, you'll find out who they are because they'll repent, they'll believe, you'll bring them in and you'll have fellowship. So the, even just the prospect of, um, of seeing God's people come together, come forward out of the darkness, even the prospect of that is enough to motivate Paul to stick it out where he is and to continue to proclaim the gospel. And I think that's the same motivation then that, that we should also then likewise seek, is that we would see and hope for and long for the fellowship of God's people with one another, even with people who aren't yet considered God's people. So uh, I guess another maybe diagnostic question to think about as you consider just your own motives in discipleship and evangelism is do you desire fellowship with the Lord? And then likewise, do you desire fellowship with God's people? Because if you don't, then there's, you're just not going to proclaim the gospel. You're not going to uh, seek this out in people's lives that they might know Jesus better. Which, which makes sense because you don't really have any sort of rooted motivation that goes beyond maybe your own pride. But if we want to know the Lord better, if we want to know his people and have fellowship with them, inevitably what happens is it overflows into us desiring to proclaim the gospel to anyone who will listen, especially among the people of God. Because we, won't, we will not be satisfied until our fellowship with them is stronger and stronger and stronger, because that's the desire of God's people. That's a hallmark of what it means to be among God's people, is that we want to strengthen the bonds we have with one another, and then likewise with the Lord. So then third and finally here, according to John 1, 1 John 1, uh, the third mark of, of evangelism and discipleship that, that I think we should cultivate in ourselves, and that, that is certainly essential to do this faithfully, is that we would complete our joy. Uh, the aim of, of proclaiming Christ, the aim of uh, telling people what we know, is that it would complete our joy. And this is what John says in chapter one, verse four. He says, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete, which is so backwards, I think, to how I kind of grew up thinking about evangelism and discipleship, thinking this is more for somebody else and not as much for my own purposes. But John is very transparent. He says, by doing this, I'm just gonna let you in on something. It makes me really happy. You know, This is something that I find by doing this, by pursuing this and pursuing you in this way, the Lord actually stirs up joy in my heart. And I think we've seen some of the ways that that would naturally come about because as you meditate on who Jesus is and what he's done and you proclaim that to other people and as you know him better for it, what other result can come about except joy? But to bring this full circle, to go back really to where we began, if you turn back to John's Gospel in chapter 15, which is where we started. You remember Jesus was talking to his disciples about the importance of abiding in him. And he said, if you abide in me, I'll abide in you. But one other thing comes to his people when they abide in him. He says in verse 11, chapter 15, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That your joy may be complete. You, you hear it when John writes his letter. It's as if he remembers what Jesus spoke to him very clearly. Now, as you know me better, and as you proclaim me to others, your joy is completed. Your joy is built up. Your joy is perfected. Your joy is made fuller and fuller to to overflowing. That's what happens for the life of God's people as they seek to make Jesus known among themselves and among the, the unbelievers around them, wherever they go, is that the Lord imparts joy to his people by knowing Jesus better. So proclaiming the gospel cultivates joy, right? Proclaiming the gospel cultivates, it, 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 it builds up, it causes joy to grow. But not only proclaiming the gospel, but desiring fellowship, having fellowship, catalyzing fellowship, seeking fellowship out, sharing fellowship with others, and, and, and desiring to see that built up in God's people, that's, that's also a catalyst for joy. You know, I, um, every now and then I'll, I'll, I'll meet up with a brother or, or a sister who... Um, will be in just the state of joylessness, let's say, you know, um, and maybe that's not how they pinpoint it. That's not what they describe to me, but they'll, they'll be talking about just you know, the, the kind of the funk that they're in. Um, and, and it's not without fail, but so many times I find as you dig in, you ask questions and you get a sense of, of where this stems from, so often it comes from a f- the fact that people are, are isolated and, and they've become dead ends of the gospel. Which is tricky because they know the gospel um, and maybe they're even here most Sundays. They hear the gospel preached. But without Fellowship with God's people. I mean, fellowship, not just you're sitting next to somebody on Sunday morning. I mean, the kind of fellowship that draws you to share meals together, to pray for one another, the kind of fellowship the Lord calls us to that uh, means that we inevitably get a little bit nosy in people's lives because we care about them and we want to see them grow in holiness. Um, Without the... the, Without... If we're not... Conduits of God's grace to, to one another, and then likewise to people who maybe don't know the gospel, where the gospel flows through us to the world. If we just end up being cul-de-sacs, it, there's something about that that just kind of festers. Not that the gospel goes bad, but that but that we start to to cave in. We start to to to. Cave in, You know, just from the inside out, we just we fall apart. Because we're not meant to be cul-de-sacs. We're not meant to be never-ending, you know, uh, bottomless bags. We, we, we are meant to be vessels by which the Lord communicates his grace and his gospel to others. And so I think that's something that, that we need to be mindful of. When we think about discipleship, when we think about evangelism, man, you know, am I, am I struggling with this? Am I, am I dealing with a lack of joy in my life? And could it possibly be because I, I've become so just self-consumed that I'm not really even aware of God's people around me and how I might minister and build them up? And that I'm not really aware of the lost people around me who need desperately to hear the gospel. Because by doing that, it, it, it opens us up uh, to hearing and understanding and dwelling on the truth of who Jesus is more and more. And that produces joy in our lives. So some final just thoughts here, some practical advice for evangelism. I think some implications then of what we've, what we've said here. Don't assume that someone else is going to step in and do the work that you see needs to be done. I think it's true for evangelism. It's true for discipleship. I think the temptation is to think, well, you know what? Um, I can't do this right now, or I'm not equipped to do this right now, but I'm sure somebody else, another brother or sister in the church, or another Christian roaming out in the world will step in here. Don't assume that. And I say don't assume it, not just because that's not necessarily true, but because you may be missing out on an opportunity to grow in joy. All right, why, why, why potentially short-circuit that? If this is an opportunity for you to seek fellowship, to, to create fellowship where there wasn't any by God's grace and to proclaim what you know to others, then, then joy will inevitably follow and don't miss that opportunity. But not only that, don't assume that someone else is better equipped for the work of discipleship and evangelism that you see is necessary. You know, um, I, it's, it's, it's funny to me um, how People, and, I, and this is true of myself too, we, you know, we so often, we just kind of assume that, that somebody else is probably better suited for that conversation, that relationship, that sort of boldness that's needed. Um, but you know, if you know the gospel, and you, if you know Jesus, then you really are actually perfectly equipped to do uh, the work of discipleship and evangelism. Because that's what people need. They don't need your smarts. They don't need uh, your winsomeness. What they need is Jesus, and if you know Him, you are the perfect person to introduce Him to or them to Him. It just it's just true. Um, there may be other people who are, are better with words and, and more knowledgeable of Scripture and have a crazier testimony. That's that may be true, but they're not better equipped. Um, because they don't have more Jesus than you do. They don't know more Jesuses than you know. They know the one Jesus whom we proclaim. Uh, share what you know. You know, we, we proclaim what we know. And I think that's important because I think sometimes we, we tend to get bogged down or even just walk away because we're afraid of what we don't know. Um, and as Christians, I think we need to be okay with saying to somebody, even an unbeliever, oh man, I don't know the answer to whatever question or challenge you may have here. Can I get back to you? Can we talk about it some more? The point is, share with them what you do know. You may think, oh, I'm not equipped to disciple that person because I haven't lived the life that they've lived. I haven't had the same experiences that they've had. Uh, I, I don't know what all they need to hear. But if you know Jesus, you know enough. If you know the gospel and the hope of the gospel that we have, you know plenty. And so bring that to bear on the people around you. And then finally, and I think this is the most important thing, and I think it's something that we very easily forget, decide, determine to enjoy the gospel around and with other people. Right, Jesus' prayer for us is that our joy would be full. John says that his hope as he proclaims the gospel to the people around him is that his joy might be complete. And so if, if in, in our efforts to tell others about Jesus is, is, um, is not rooted in a desire for joy uh, and, and the happiness that comes with knowing Christ then yeah, no wonder we tend to fizzle out and get bogged down and and intimidated. But if our our aim and all of our relationships with believers and unbelievers alike is that we would enjoy Jesus in front of them, or if they're believers with them, that we would share in that joy, that changes everything. And it turns what I think is so often a, a task and an obligation into just the atmosphere of your life. Which makes evangelism and discipleship so much more natural, I think, and, and realistic of an expectation. Because as you enjoy Jesus in front of people, you're proclaiming the gospel. You're telling them, you're showing them how Jesus is so much better. Um, and, and likewise, around one another, you know, your brothers and sisters in the faith, you know, as you enjoy Christ in, with one another, um, it becomes a testament, a reminder to each other of the, the beauty and the power of the cross and, and of our need to pursue Jesus more, more diligently and earnestly, not out of obligation, but because we, we want to enjoy Christ more. And I think that serves as a witness to one another in all of our interactions. Well, that's all the time I have. Let me pray for us. Um, I hope that you, you understand and see how discipleship and evangelism causes us to grow or can cause us to grow. I hope that you see that, that because of that, it can, it can happen anywhere, at any time, uh, with anybody. Father, we do thank you for, uh, for yet another means by which we might grow, uh, that we might know you better. As we seek to make Jesus known, you help us to know him as well. And you give us joy, and you strengthen us for, for, for everything. You equip us and you give us boldness, not in and of ourselves, but but because of who Christ is. And in doing so, as we know him, we become more like him. We become more compassionate, more patient. We bear the fruit of holiness in our lives. And, And Lord, you use that use that to testify and to corroborate the the witness of the gospel that we have proclaimed. And you show people the power of the cross. Not just facts, but the experience of your grace that we have. Would you you cause us to be bold um, and more than anything, would you cause us to have joy as we seek to make Christ known in our church and in our city and our families? We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.